Ванной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Over the past week, I've been wrestling with what the SRB podcast could do to show solidarity with the tens of thousands of people risking their bodies to protest the Minneapolis police brutal murder of George Floyd. One of the podcast groups I follow on Facebook had a discussion on whether people should go dark this week as part of Blackout Tuesday. I decided that not releasing a podcast this week wasn't the right way to show solidarity. Signs all over my neighborhood read, white silence equals violence. So I'm going to use this platform, my voice, to bring black historical experience to my audience. I want my listeners to know why black lives matter, even when it comes to the history of Russia. So I have two things to share with you, a poem and an interview. The first is the Harlem Renaissance poet Claude McKay reading and commenting on his seminal poem, If We Must Die, the anthem for the new Negro movement. If We Must Die was published in The Crusader in September 1919, a radical black journal edited by Cyril Briggs, the founder of the African Blood Brotherhood. McKay wrote If We Must Die in response to the Red Summer of 1919, when white mobs murdered black Americans and ravaged black communities in tens of cities around the United States. Red Summer had a traumatic and radicalizing effect on black Americans. Briggs ran McKay's anthem three times to urge blacks to organize for self-defense. McKay was also an early black sojourner to the Soviet Union, and was a delegate with Otto Husewood for the American delegation to the Communist International in 1922. Here's Claude McKay reading If We Must Die, followed by his comment on the poem's meaning. If we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and penned in an inglorious part while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us, though dead. Oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe, though far outnumbered, let us show us brave, and for the thousand blows deal one death blow. What though before us lies the open grave, like men we'll face the murderous cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying but fighting back. If We Must Die is the poem that makes me a poet among colored Americans. Yet, frankly, I have never regarded myself as a Negro poet. I have always felt that my gift of song was something bigger than the narrow confining limits of any one people and its problems. Even though many of my themes were racial, I wrote my poems to make a universal appeal. 
When If We Must Die was first published in 1919, it was denounced by many conservative white leaders as evidence of a new spirit among Negroes. Senator Henry Cabot Lodge read it into the records of Congress. But times change, and so I was not at all surprised when during the Nazi air blitz on Britain, an English anthologist requested the use of If We Must Die for an anthology of verse. But I was surprised by what happened when I turned on my radio one morning in 1944. A commentator was telling about the death of a young white American soldier on the Russian front. The commentator went on to say that the youth was a lover of poetry and he proceeded to read one of five poems which had been discovered on the dead youth's body. And he read, If We Must Die. The commentator did not mention the name of the author, Claude McKay, nor did he state that the poem was the work of a colored man. Perhaps he did not know, but I felt profoundly gratified and justified. I felt assurance that If We Must Die was just what I intended it to be, a universal poem. And wherever men are pressed with their backs against the wall, abused, outraged, and murdered, whether they are minorities or nations, black or brown or yellow or white, Catholics or Protestants or pagans fighting against the terror, if we must die, could be appropriately read. The Russian Revolution captured the imagination of black radicals in the 1920s and 1930s. The Bolsheviks' forceful declarations of anti-colonialism and anti-racism inspired black radicals to travel to the USSR and see the Soviet experiment for themselves. So what was the experience of these sojourners to the Soviet Union? How did it give them perspective on the realities and possibilities of communism? Joy Gleason Carew gives us some insight. Joy Gleason Carew is a professor of linguistics in the Department of Pan-African Studies at the University of Louisville. She's the author of Blacks, Reds, and Russians, Sojourners in Search of the Soviet Promise, published by Rutgers University Press. Here's Joy Gleason Carew. Let's just start off by, by you explaining what drew you to study the history of ex and experience of African and African-American sojourners to Russia. Well, I think we can blame my Russian teacher at Putney School. I went to a boarding school in Vermont uh, where I was studying Russian from my freshman year of high school. As I often tell teachers, don't discount what you give your students in those early years because it may set them on their path for life. Uh, I loved studying Russian. I loved my Russian teacher. So I did uh, not only the studies in high school, but through college and graduate work. Uh, and uh, in along the way, of course, became curious about uh, blacks who were interested in Russia. My parents had traveled there in the 50s and had some interesting stories as well. And so it, it became a labor of love to, to find ways to expand on this story beyond my personal experiences to, to that of other blacks who had looked at the Soviet Union in particular with a particular interest. Um, I've often felt that this is an underserved story, although happily more and more people 
in recent times are writing about it. Uh, and what I wanted to do with, uh, I'm, I'm a sociolinguist, that's my background, besides Russian and French being my languages, and I've often used oral histories as a means to tease out stories of people, and history ultimately, to my sense, is, is biography. It's individuals in, in mass, then we talk about it as history. So what I wanted to do with the, the writing I did initially with the book and then subsequent articles was to tease out the personal stories of those African-Americans and other blacks who went through the U.S. to the Soviet Union, why they went, what models they represent for us even today, but also to understand the times, the times that would make it possible for people to do something so incredibly brave and uh, foolhardy to other people's attention uh, to, to, to choose an alternate society. From what I understand, you you do have some deep personal connection to this. I mean, you mentioned your parents traveled to the Soviet Union. You've been you went to the Soviet Union, I believe, in the '60s, right? Right. Initially, I was a student in the late '60s, uh, and then uh, I took my own students in the '70s, as well as other groups of teachers and professionals with sort of people-to-people exchange through the '70s. Uh, so that deepened my personal exposure to to the Soviet Union. And also, your late husband uh, Jan Karu. Uh, was one of the first students, at least in Czechoslovakia, but also traveled in the Soviet Union and published a novel about it. Right, right. Well, his books of the 50s were very popular in the Soviet Union, and he went as a guest of the Soviet Writers' Union a couple of times. Uh, and uh, so, ironically, I ended up marrying this guy, but I, I didn't know him in those days when I was a student. I would have loved to have known him then, because he was living quite a nice, luxurious life when I <laughs> I was not enjoying those levels of hospitality. Hospitality, yes, but not, uh, you know, the fancy hotels and travel, etc. Now, of course, encounters between Russians and Africans is a century-old phenomenon. I mean, Alison Blankley wrote about this in his uh, famous and seminal book. And But African and African-American immigration to Russia is mostly a 20th century phenomenon. What brought blacks to Russia? Well, what brought blacks to Russia was frustration with their home society. Uh, even the blacks who were not originally from the U.S., like George Padmore from Trinidad or Claude McKay from Jamaica, these are people who come up from the colonies in the Caribbean for what they hoped would be a better life in America, smack into U.S. racism. Uh, and so they were they were leaning towards uh, people who were talking about social change. Uh, and part of that discussion in the U.S. of social change was looking at progressive movements in Europe, Russia being a particularly interesting one with the Russian Revolution. Uh, So these were people who were fed up with uh, Jim Crow and the other terrorist conditions of life north and south in the United States for blacks and willing to test out what was suggested as an alternative society, a non-racial society, one that welcomed all people of goodwill who would come to help build the society or certainly work in solidarity with the society. Uh, And race, uh, color was not a a factor that would keep you out of that. So I'm not saying everybody rushed over there. It had to be a brave set of souls who went first, intellectuals, very ambitious people. But it is through their example, their writing, their broadcasts, their letters and other things that they then inspired other blacks back in the U.S., certainly to be in solidarity with it if they did not personally travel over. Now, now this is interesting, and one of the things from reading your work I I started to wonder about, um, in what ways were American blacks who went to the Soviet Union transmitters 
of what American race relations were like to Russians. And then also, once they came back or communicated with people in America, transmitters for what was Soviet communism? Well, they were the conduit of information in both directions. Uh, from the earliest days, Lenin was writing about the fact that there are other solidarity groups with whom they should be working in terms of spreading the revolution globally. And American blacks, American Negroes in those days, was mentioned in some of his early writing and the common turn meeting. So there was early on, they understood that there were oppressed people in other parts of the world with whom they should express and demonstrate their solidarity. On the other hand, for blacks here, looking at this example of the Soviet Union are, of course, aspiring to experience this thing. And once they have, they're very anxious to, to translate some of that experience back. So Crisis Magazine, for instance, Claude McKay is the first black person to go officially to be there. He's right there in the common turn meeting the famous photograph of McKay there in the Kremlin. He then writes this article in, in Crisis, which everybody is reading, uh, and this is talking about being treated respectfully to, in fact, being welcomed, as you said, in, in, in great glorious terms. This is unheard of for blacks in the United States if we're talking about the 20s. The 1930s is another period where we have the Depression. People are going because of there's an economic imperative as well. There are no jobs here, and what few jobs there are, they're not paying very much. Whites are taking what blacks, what they would have turned their noses up. Blacks are definitely not getting work. They're getting work in the Soviet Union. They're writing letters back. In the 30s, letters could travel back and forth pretty easily. So those letters plus periodic visits, people coming back, they're talking about their experiences and then inspiring others to want to go. And you also have some really incredibly prominent people in African-American intellectual circles and culture, people like W.E.B. Du Bois, who's going there repeatedly. Langston Hughes spent a year in Soviet Russia. And then, of course, Paul Robeson. What was the importance of these figures and how they uh, viewed Soviet society and how they translated this back to an American audience? And all of these have a different kind of constituents. I mean, yes, we have the basic overarching factor of blacks who are, are oppressed, they're feeling lack of opportunity, questions of self-esteem and things like that, that they're plaguing them in the United States. If you take Langston Hughes, very talented writer, we celebrate him as the, you know, the Harlem Renaissance, etc., but he couldn't get published. And his attraction to the Soviet Union was he was finally able to work on a film. He'd been sending scripts to Hollywood for years, but there's a black guy you know, they're not going to pay any attention to him. He gets an opportunity to work on a film in the Soviet Union. He's thrilled. He ends up staying for a year writing, being published. He said he make more, made more money in that year than he'd made in his whole life in the United States. So, I mean, talk about one sense of self in these experiences. Robeson's a different character because he, even though he might have moved there, he still had a lot happening in Europe and it just wasn't strategically a good idea to permanently move there. But he's traveling back and forth from the mid-30s to the time that he fell really ill at the end of the 50s. And his opportunity now to both be a voice in the Soviet Union on the plight of blacks in the Americas, plus uh, the blacks liberating themselves in the anti-colonial movement. But he, he's a spokesperson there. 
So he's building solidarity among Russian people and the Soviets, etc., for the Black Plight. He comes back to the U.S., the same thing. He's building um, sort of um, a bridge to think positively about what the models that the Soviets have set up can be for African Americans. So he's a wonderful back-and-forth person. Uh, du Bois... He goes in 1926 because he's read Claude McKay from 1923 talking about this experience, and he said, I got to go. He goes every 10 years, and he's actually gone at some very pivotal times. You think about 26. He then goes just before World War II breaks out. He goes in 49. He then goes at the end of the 50s. So he has a, a kind of a panoramic view of these changes, not as deep as maybe as some other people, but he's the kind of person who can look at this from an internationalist perspective. So again, he's in both. He can speak to the black flight there, continue to build solidarity in the Soviet Union. He comes back. He's got the bully pulpit in terms of his various writing venues in the U.S. So he, again, is spreading this, this vision of an alternate society and its possibility. The last point I want to make for Du Bois and Robeson is these two men went through, you know, a real hell and high water situation with the McCarthy period. They stayed steadfast. They were supportive of the Soviet Union. Well, Soviet experiment, not so much Soviet Union. Let's talk about the difference. Soviet experience was this, this model, this idea of an alternate society that was, you know, looking after its citizens, not just exploiting people as a model. And so they were also looking at it as an alternate voice in the global dialogue, the Cold War for hearts and minds of black people, particularly as you think about the African nations gaining their independence after World War II. They saw this as an important foil against the West and the U.S. model. So they understood strategically that their relationship in terms of supporting the Soviet experiment was broader than just just a personal objective. Now, of course, Russia is a multi-ethnic society. And, and what interest did blacks take in Russia's ethnic minorities? And how did their encounters with non-Russians shape their experience? Oh, that, that's a great question, because a, a lot of times people don't even realize how multi-ethnic Russia is. I mean, the general picture of Russia is European Russia, and Russia is a massive country. It's two. It's in two continents. There's both European Russia, there's Asia Russia, and the Asian Russia, especially Uzbekistan, became emblematic for black people. They all wanted to go and see Uzbekistan, because this was one of the more backward areas. It was a colonial property of the period, so purposefully exploited and kept backward, yet under the Soviet experiment, having opportunities in terms of political development, in terms of health care, in terms of education, all the things they wanted to see black America having in the U.S. and not having, they were seeing happening in these places like Uzbekistan. So they became sort of the, the sort of common theme of look what you can do if you have the political will for social change. In one generation, you can make life so much better for people than in the U.S. where they're saying, well, you know, the black situation is going to take several generations before we can solve it here. So uh, 
to going to see what was happening in Uzbekistan or in the case of the agricultural specialists to actually be posted there to contribute to help building the Soviet experiment in Uzbekistan, this was very important. So there was sort of black people helping other people of color. I had somebody actually pointed this out to me um, that I found really interesting. There's also this kind of connection between, say, the Soviet South with the American South and the imagination of some of these uh, black Americans. Right, right. Well, Langston Hughes, again, as I'm saying, they, they each had different strengths because some people had opportunities to write about these things. But Hughes, even after he, he was there for a year, then he comes back to the States. He's now back in America. He's still reflecting on his experiences there and the theme of Jim Crow. He has a great expression. He says, there's no, there's no, oh gosh, no, I can't remember. There's no discrimination on the trains. Uh, there's no, oh, that is, yeah. There's no Jim Crow on Soviet trains. The train was always emblematic in the United States. Even if you went north, you often had relatives or you had some reason to go south. As you got on that train, then the segregation would become quite palpable in the sense that where would blacks be put in the worst cars, in the dirtier sections and things like that. And so he often referred to Jim Crow by comparison traveling to Uzbekistan, which is in the south southeast of the, the massive Russian landmass as going to the South in the U.S. and not having a Southern experience. In other words, he's not Jim Crowed in the USSR, whereas he would be Jim Crowed in the U.S. So that the, this comparison with the experience of being under Jim Crow in the United States and not in the Soviet Union had a profound impact on how they... On and I think that one of the challenges we have today, and I have this often with my students, is to have them understand what does it mean to say Jim Crow. Jim Crow is a nice little term. Nobody has a sense of that. But the terror of living under Jim Crow in those days was palpable and real. It wasn't just a theoretical uh, sort of legalization. It was not only the physical fact that you could be lynched or somebody you knew personally would be lynched, or somehow as far as house firebombed and things like that, but also a kind of terrorism that was a self-regulating factor and fear, instilling fear in blacks to keep them under control. So to not have those kinds of pressures on oneself in, in the Soviet experiment experience was revolutionary. Now, Russia, of course, is no stranger to racism. Uh, what about racism in Russia towards blacks and, and how did this change over time? Because a lot of people make comparisons between the experience in the Soviet period versus the post-Soviet period. Yeah, it's extremely troubling, extremely troubling. Uh, I remember one one chap made a comment. He said it has to do with numbers. When there's a whole lot of us, then racism rises up, and that could be a factor. If we look at the early group that went in the 20s and 30s, they were relatively small number. They were spread around the country. You look at the numbers, hundreds of thousands of students who have enjoyed, and I think this is really fantastic. We should talk about that at some point, the scholarship program that brought in students from Africa and other developing parts of the world, they were all concentrated, still to this day, concentrated into communities around university campuses. So suddenly you have this number of people of dark skin and all this kind of thing, different cultures that can be a kind of focal point uh, that was different than in the early days. You have another difference, too. In the time of those coming in the 20s, they're going for political training, 
solidarity training so that they could, you know, take some of these tactics back home. In the 30s, they're coming to help build the Soviet Union. They're bringing skills to help build the country. So there's a, a, a country that's in great need of these resources. So, of course, they're going to welcome people differently. When you get to the the scholarship programs of particularly in the, to the late 60s, 70s, certainly the 80s, here you have thousands of people coming in who are seen as needy people. They need something now from the Soviet Union, and they are pre- representing a physical pressure on a society that itself is fraying at that time. So you have, you have a different social dynamic in terms of um, the struggle, the sense of struggle and common struggle of the 20s and 30s and even the early days right after World War II to a later period where you have economic interests also coming in uh, as a factor. Yeah, in some of the research I, I've done, this was in some of the archival documents, this was a common refrain amongst uh, both Soviet officials and Soviet students, which are, we are helping, in, in the 1960s, we are helping you, you're coming to us, we're giving you all these things, free tuition, free housing, and you don't appreciate what we're doing. Yes, yes. I'm actually uh, doing a piece actually for a conference that's coming up that's looking at uh, uh, a similar pattern with uh, Du Bois presaging the scholarships in China. I'm looking at the People's Republic of China and some similar themes where uh, these students are coming in and they're not representing their thankfulness in the way that people want. But it has to do with less a question of thankfulness, but people who themselves are under stress in the host society. You know, in the early 60s, I think that there was enough government and general will to deal with that. Nowadays, you have different pressures where people are living in societies that themselves are quite a shell shock. They don't quite know how to deal with the economic difficulties that they're faced. So here's this this group of privileged people coming in, quite visibly different, uh, apparently exploiting the situation. And I'm not saying there aren't those who weren't exploiting the situation in terms of, you know, fancy clothes and then taking advantage of getting all the girls and things like that. I might mention getting the girls has been a, a periodic issue in every country. Uh, it seems that uh, the exotic foreigner is often uh, quite attractive to local women and add that to, to in Russia case, vodka, you can then uh, have some, some really touchy moments. Now, that, that actually leads into my next question, which is, uh, well, the first, uh, first a different question. Um, what is in in what ways does the um, what what do we learn about the perception of race in Russia compared to that of in the U.S. through the experience of American blacks in Russia? It it's an interesting question. I think that uh, the the Soviet model has always been that cl- social class was a more important discriminator than than race. Okay, obviously they perceived difference, and and you could see that in the sense that the photo ops of that early period with Claude McKay was very important to show a very dark man in these pictures because these pictures are being broadcast to populations of dark skinned people. Uh, you know, there's interesting interesting point that uh, uh, Otto Hugheswood, uh, a man from Dutch Guiana, was there at the same time, but he was light-skinned, so you couldn't really tell in the photos. 
with the key Kremlin figures. Well, where's the black guy? Uh, so they understood that there's a there's a visible difference, but they tried very hard to downplay race as a particular factor in those early days. And I, I you know, and now I'm talking in terms of the the internationalist vision. Now, of course, you've got a different dynamic if you're talking about domestic issues where race and ethnicity uh, under the the certainly under the theoretical model of the Soviet experiment did not exist but certainly did persist in terms of other things but at the same time if we look at the way that African Americans are writing about like Langston Hughes um, going to Uzbekistan where he sees people look very much like himself who are enjoying levels of, of, of respect and jobs and they're running their own government and all things that could be, would have been unheard of in the US he sees that as very emblematic of what could happen there if we could then just replicate that back home. You see what I'm saying? So, I mean, I think that the Soviets, there was a certain strategy there as well that they understood. Uh, and uh, so it, it isn't to, to totally discount the issue of race as the discriminating factor, which is certainly what it is here. That's the first thing we use when we de we define ourselves in relation to others as race. Then we get into other things. They were trying very hard not to use that as the primary divide, dividing line. Yeah, I, I in, in some of the reading that I've done, you get this interesting dynamic where, on the one hand, uh, I forget who it was, but one of these uh, black Americans mentioned the fact that he was almost, he felt deracialized in the Soviet Union. But then you have these other encounters where Russians encountering people that, of course, you know, encountering an African or African-American is a very rare, you know, experience in the, in the 1920s, 30s, and certainly even in the 50s and 60s. And the, the, there is almost a, a curiosity of sorts, like curiosity with black appearance, curiosity with, of course, a fascination with black culture and black music and this. Um, so it, it's, it's really hard to kind of pin down like what is the racial dynamics because it doesn't work the same way there as it does here. No. Uh, I, and in fact, Du Bois is one of the ones who made this thing. He said he felt invisible in the good way <laughs> because, you know, in the U.S., uh, that black man first and then all these other things, all these degrees. Yes, 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 yes. We see that. But black man first. So, you know, the double consciousness thing that he writes about so so evocatively. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. Uh, people, uh, if we look at sort of the, the accounts of the ordinary Russians fascination with black people, it wasn't just black people per se, but particular black people, if we're talking about the 20s and 30s, who are in a particular bubble of, of, of authorized visitors, so to speak. Uh, Paul Robeson's a great example of that. I mean, obviously, he was traveling at levels quite different than maybe the people who actually settled there and then had to live through the trials and travails of many years plus World War II and all that kind of thing. Uh, but I, I, you know, so when people would think that somebody was Paul Robeson, and that was a big deal to go and have your picture taken with Paul Robeson or the whatever. Ollie Harrington, the cartoonist, uh, uh, made a comment that he was sitting on a bench one point. I think he was in Uzbekistan. He was catching something, and the person came up to him and gave him a child, gave him a flower. And he's sort of quizzical about why is she giving me this flower? He accepted it. And then the mother came up and said, we're so glad to see you here, Paul Robeson. Well, you know. 
one black guy, pudgy, slightly pudgy, looks like Will Rumpton. <laughs> and he said, you know, he was he was both taken aback and pleased at the same time. <laughs> right, right. Now, many, many blacks, of course, came back to the America after a couple of years, but also many remained in Russia and they married and they had families. And you've interviewed many of their descendants. Um, what do they say about their experience as Afro-Russians and Afro-Russian identity? It, you know, it, it's complex, and I, I really would like to, to do more work on that as well. Um, well, for, first of all, their sense of Americanness is an African Americanness through the father usually, or perhaps if it's another generation, the grandfather. A story of somebody who had to leave home for opportunity, this new place. So it's not a happy memory of that African American part of their heritage, right? In many cases, their fathers died rather early. So then the father's story gets translated to them as they grow up through their Russian mothers. So, you know, physically, they're looking at themselves as this blend of this African-American and a Russian or or Ukrainian mother, etc. So they see difference, you know, they feel different, but because they live in this little bubble of special category, people came to help, and then the story sort of follows them throughout, and people want to help them because their father helped the Soviet people and things like that. They have a certain privilege, this particular group, right? Uh, but their stories of their African Americanness is translated, is mediated. Let me put it this way: through a Russian or a Ukrainian. In other words, the mother has been sort of their stalwart, who, of course, remains a certain romanticized um, uh, font of information of the father. Um, but I will say, for those who stayed on, you know, they they didn't have an easy life because it wasn't, I mean, this, the Soviet Union was a really backward place. <laughs> I mean, very backward. Uh, and those who went into the provinces like Uzbekistan, even more so. Now, on the one hand, they were going to a back place, so they were pleased they were going to be offering help that would make a difference, particularly in cotton and other agricultural uh, uh, activities. But the Soviets also made some dispensations to, for them. They gave them special housing, they gave them uh, child care, and all sorts of other things that they thought was appropriate for specialists who were coming in, which is kind of interesting. In this country, it wouldn't have mattered. You're black? <laughs> what specialists? So, you know, they had these kinds of special supports that with which these young people grew up. Uh, and to uh, there are some who did not go to university, but for those who wanted to go to university, again, it's still do this, well, through the Soviet era, university was free through graduate level, etc. They got opportunities to go to good schools and to become university professors or journalists or whatever. So they did quite well by comparison to that same generation in the U.S., if you look at the 50s and early 60s. Now, talking about identity, and this is where the interesting thing happens. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, as true for many Russians, there was great desire to come see this place, this Sodom and Gomorrah called the U.S., right? And this group as well, because father or grandfather came from America. Let me go experience America. And uh, many of them did travel here and have some have settled here. But there are also quite a few, particularly if we look at the 80s period, 90s, when I had most contact with them, they were never really comfortable here. They came for visits and then, you know, met relatives and things like that. But they didn't 
find living under U.S. style racism, and I'm talking 1980s, 90s, comfortable because they're Russians. They're Russians who happen to have darker skin, but they are Russians. They did. They are not black people who then are Russian. You see what I'm saying? So they felt constrained despite their academic achievements or whatever they have and the privilege that they brought with them that, that got sort of trumped by being a black person here. So, so in a way, they, they experienced the, the experience of a different racial regime. Yeah, it's complex. It's not a simple story. And and in a sense, I think that uh, for many of us, particularly with the, you know, the Cold War mentality, it's sort of an either or kind of thing. And it wasn't an either or, but it, it, and I think it's okay to have complex stories and spend time with them and sort of tease out aspects of it. And and finally, um, why is the history of black sojourners to Russia important to a broader African-American history on the one hand, and also the history of an African diaspora? Well, I think it's important because, first of all, you know, history, we all stand on history, whether we like it or not. <laughs> what exists today has come out of a historical precedent of various kinds. And I think that particularly when it comes to, we're talking about the U.S., the black story is still being told in various ways. It's it's, it's a story that's that's constantly troubled. You know, right now we're dealing with the, the themes of Black Lives Matter. Well, why do you have that? Because there's a sense that Black lives don't matter. There are all these things happening. There are constant travails that Black people seem to be struggling with. And uh, so having these stories where we can hear of people who made bold choices to alter their destiny... It is not, you know, they did not want to follow the destiny of the times, and so they chose uh, to seek out other societies and opportunities, and for those who stayed in the Soviet Union, obviously they had a totally different life than those who stayed here. So I think those models are important, that people can strike out a different path. They can. Now, at the same time, I think there's a solidarity lesson to be learned. Internationalism is a very valuable tool. We don't have to just see it, feel, see ourselves struggling in our little locales, but understand that that international scrutiny has brought pressure on the United States in the past for social change, and it can still do that. So by expanding our stories and our struggles beyond the immediate locale to a larger global community, we, we enhance the opportunity to bring about change at home. That was Joy Gleason Carew, a professor of linguistics in the Department of Pan-African Studies at the University of Louisville. She's the author of Blacks, Reds, and Russians, Sojourners in Search of the Soviet Promise, published by Rutgers University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. 
The name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn. And I mean every word of it. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? It's all in the air. I can't stand the pressure much longer. Somebody say a prayer. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. This is a show tune, but the show hasn't been written for it yet. Hound dogs on my trail, school children sitting in jail, black cat cross my path. I think every day's gonna be my last. Lord have mercy on this land of mine. We all gonna get it in due time. I don't belong here, I don't belong there. I've even stopped believing in. Don't tell me, I'll tell you Me and my people just about do I've been there so I know Keep on saying, go slow But that's just the trouble Washing the windows thought I was kidding didn't. picket lines school boycotts they try to say it's a communist plot all I want is equality for my sister my brother my people and me yes you lied to me all these years you told me to wash and clean my ears and talk real fine just like a lady and you'd stop calling me sister sadie oh but this whole country is full of lies you all gonna die and die like flies i don't trust you anymore you keep on saying go slow Mass participation, unification. 
next to me, just give me my equality. 